So welcome to the seminar on Understanding the Times, uh, with a very big long subtitle here, uh, it's a bit of a mouthful, a, a pre-modern meditation on the modernist roots of postmodernism. <laughs> a pre-modern meditation on the modernist roots of postmodernism. Uh, meditation, because in this seminar we'll be looking at various cultural, artistic expressions of different worldviews, different spiritualities, and having an opportunity to meditate upon those and to discuss them. And I'm kind of equally as interested in giving us a feeling of what it likes to sort of live within different worldviews and spiritualities, as much as I am to trace the the um, the ideological connections and differences between them, um, to trace those connections in a sort of history of ideas kind of way, uh, because these uh, different uh, worldviews, spiritualities, crop up over time, um, but they don't disappear when a new one crops up, so they then live alongside each other. Uh, and today, I would say, we have these three different worldview spiritualities of, of, of pre-modern, particularly in the West, pre-modern Christianity, of, of modernist, sort of secular humanist, materialist kind of worldview, and post-modernism of, of various degrees, as we'll see, uh, living alongside one another. Let me draw your attention to this wonderful piece of art at the front here uh, by the Japanese Christian artist Makoto Fujimura. And this is a piece of art called White Tree. Uh, and Fujimura uses um, traditional Eastern techniques of painting that uses very sort of expensive materials in the minerals and the sort of gold flecks and so on that, that go into his artwork but he uses that to express a Christian worldview. Uh, and of course, you know, what does white tree put you in mind of? Biblically speaking, we have trees at the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, and we have the tree of life in Revelation at the end, uh, white tree, etc. So uh, things are very subtly being said and communicated uh, here. And uh, we'll look at some of the ways in which philosophical ideas communicate through um, art, uh, even when it's not particularly sort of programmatic. Well, this is not a what you might immediately think of as a sort of traditional piece of Christian artwork. You know, it's not an icon. It's not a painting of the Virgin and Child or Jesus on the cross or what have you, which are obviously very explicitly about religious themes, at least. Um, but uh, a piece of art doesn't have to explicitly feature things that, that shout at you, I'm talking about Christianity or I'm talking about atheism in order to uh, be imbued with and to communicate therefore something of a person's life and worldview. I'm not going to read this whole quote from Augustine, but this is uh, St. Augustine uh, from his uh, great voluminous work, The City of God. But he talks about in his day that the two, gives his analogy, two cities have been formed by two different loves. The earthly, by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. And the heavenly, by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. And he saw this, this division between the city of the world and the city of God, in sort of Pauline terms. Uh, the former glories in itself, the latter in the Lord. 
uh, and so on. And he gives this wonderful description uh, here. And uh, today, uh, I think this still holds true, but it's just that the city of the world is itself divided between modernism and postmodernism. Although, as we'll see, actually, that's not the radical divide that it at first appears. Actually, there's a continuity of underlying concepts between modernism and postmodernism. Nicholas uh, Wolterstorff, a Christian philosopher from America, in his book Education for Shalom, for Peace, for Wholeness, uh, says this, that there's a dispute raging today between those who see the Enlightenment project of governing our existence by reason as an unfinished project promising liberation on which all should continue to work. And on the other hand, those who see in that Enlightenment project little but the tyranny of reason, of capital R. The first party says that if we don't continue to govern our lives by reason, we can only expect more of the terrors of irrationalism. Think of the, the French Revolution here. You know, founded in the Enlightenment Age, the French Revolution, founded on Enlightenment values. They installed uh, uh, a girl dressed up as the goddess Reason in the cathedral there and tried to secularize the state and so on. But the horrors of the French Revolution, the beheadings, the killings of priests and so on, the terrors of irrationalism that flow from an apparent dedication to reason. Uh, the second party says that if we don't continue to govern our lives by reasons, we can only expect more of those terrors. Uh, in brief, that is the dispute between the defenders of modernism and of postmodernism, and it's intense and it's confused. And I want to say a plague on both of your houses, <laughs> as it were, because I'm neither a modernist nor a postmodernist. I am a pre-modernist. Yes. <laughs> so two different cities, two different worldviews or spiritualities. A worldview is, is a dwelling place. It's your mental home. It, and it's like a mirror, to borrow an analogy from the postmodern philosopher Richard Rorty. Our worldview is a mirror that reflects our own image of reality back to us, in a sense. The ways in which what we believe about reality can have powerful effects upon how we experience reality to be. And very often, the modernists will say, no, we, we just want our view of the world to be informed by experience. You know, this, what's the scientific data and the evidence and so on? And yes, of course, that's very important. Uh, but the postmodernists do have a point in that you'll, we all view things from our own viewpoint. We do all have to be aware that the way we think reality is can have huge effects upon how we even experience reality. Uh, you may have seen some of those videos of psychology experiments uh, where people are, are given a task involving um, counting how many times the team of people wearing white t-shirts passes a ball amongst themselves. And, and they're told, don't try not to get distracted by the people in the black t-shirts who are also passing a ball amongst themselves. This is about, can you focus your attention giving the right number of passes between the people in the white t-shirts. And they show them the video and get the results. And it, was it 16, was it 17, was it 18, whatever. Did anybody notice anything odd? No, no, what do, you, what do you mean? Well, let's look at the video again, but let's not bother counting. They play the video again, and only on the second time watching it through do you notice the guy in the gorilla suit 
who walks into the room, beats his chest, I'm sure you can find this on YouTube, walks out again, because he was so focused on only things in white are relevant. Your brain, you told him to screen out anything, but so you didn't see the guy in the gorilla suit. So just asking someone to, to do a task like that can put in mind a belief about reality that renders a six foot tall guy in a gorilla suit invisible to them. But of course, knowing this kind of thing, we can try and take appropriate measures uh, to, to lessen those effects, to be aware of our own biases uh, and so on. Uh, we don't need that insight to lead us into the, the deep skepticism and relativism of the postmodernist. So whether or not our worldview in the end ends up reflecting reality to us depends upon whether or not our worldview is true. Worldviews can be more or less true or false. And being true, just to be clear, being true is a matter of telling it like it is. Being true to the facts of the matter, to things that don't depend upon us. It's up to us what we believe and think to some degree, but it's not up to us whether our beliefs are true or false. That depends upon how things really are. So a worldview functions at this level of a spirituality. Let me expand upon worldview from there to the notion of a spirituality. And say so a spirituality aims to be, at least, a virtuous and integrative way of living, a way of relating to reality in various dimensions via your worldview assumptions and beliefs in your mind about what's true and false, combined with the attitudes uh, of your heart, your affective responses to things, your commitments to things, your choosing and willing, and the combination of what you believe and assume about reality and your heart response will lead you to act. So your assumptions, attitude, actions, or your head, your heart, and your hands. If you like, see I come from a Baptist background. Sermons have three points all beginning with the same letter. Um, <laughs> head, heart, and hands. And that is your spirituality. And it becomes a self-reinforcing feedback loop in, in your life and in, in people's lives. Uh, because I believe certain things about God and I have certain attitudes positively towards God, that leads me to behave in certain ways like turning up to Bible study and praying and going to church and so on. But because I engage in those activities, because I do those things, that tends to reinforce my beliefs and my attitudes. Going through having communion is a powerful liturgical reinforcement of my attitudes and belief towards God. So you see this becomes a sort of rolling a snowball downhill in a perfect ideally. And that's why it's so difficult to do evangelism and apologetics. When we're evangelizing people, we're not simply saying, oh, could you change your mind about a piece of general knowledge? Like, oh, I didn't think there was a God, and I didn't think Jesus was God, um, but now I'll adopt those beliefs. Thanks very much. I've, you know, I've cleared up that issue, and I've increased the, the, the number of truths in my brain. Ta. 
That's obviously not the full extent of what's going on. Yes, that is going on, but it's your whole person, your head and your heart and your hands, your relation, how you're relating to reality, the way that you feel at home or not in reality is at stake in these conversations <coughs> between spiritualities and worldviews. And that's why it takes time and patience and love and arguments uh, and so on. Now, I'm not just coming up with this off the top of my head, nor am I the first to think of it. Uh, I did note that in his response to the question about the greatest commandment uh, in the Synoptics, where Jesus refers back to Deuteronomy 6, Jesus says that uh, basically true virtuous spirituality begins with loving God with all of your heart, your attitudes, and with all of your mind, your worldview, and what you think and how you think, and so on, and with all of your strength, well, basically your actions, what you do because of that. And indeed, back to Deuteronomy, different verse in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 31, 12, talking about teaching, uh, assemble the people, men, women, and children, everyone, is to learn, and the foreigners residing in your towns, so they can listen and learn to fear, learn to fear or respect, perhaps you could translate that, the Lord, your God, and follow carefully all the words of his law. So you learn in your head, you fear, you respect with your heart, and that leads you to follow in your actions, you see? Once you have this kind of grid in mind, you see it popping out all over the place throughout scripture. Uh, and I think that's just because this is how we're made in the image of God to function. And you'll see, you know, you can read uh, New Age or secular books on spirituality um, that will basically use the same kind of schema. Um, if you know anything about cognitive behavioral therapy, for example, you will, you will see uh, clear resonance between this kind of structure of understanding of, of human uh, psychology and motivation uh, and the categories that are used in cognitive behavioural therapy. So we've thought about worldview as then the basis of your spirituality and we've thought about how spirituality becomes like rolling a snowball downhill. So that's then leads us into the notion of spiritual development. As I said, spirituality at least aims to be a virtuous and integrative way of life, a way of living that brings wholeness or shalom uh, to the person rather than being disintegrative and, and leaving, leaving you to be at war with yourself in, in, in the world, as it were. So one hopes ideally that when spirituality leads to, if you internalise that spirituality, not just going along with the crowd. If you, if you own it for yourself, you internalize it, it should lead to a virtuous circle and cycle of integration, of greater and greater wholeness to the person. And of course, as, as Christians, wholeness in reflecting the person nature of Christ. We, you know, the Bible talks about putting on Christ, dressing up more and more like him as it were, in analogical terms. But of course, spirituality can lead to spiritual devolution, and one would expect this of false spiritualities. Um, that internalization of a false spirituality would lead to disintegration, 
and a lack of personal wholeness. So as Augustine again said, my sin was this, that I looked for pleasure, beauty, truth, not in him, but in myself and his other creatures. And this search led me instead to pain and confusion and error. And he famously, at the beginning of his autobiography, The Confessions, uh, very early in The Confessions, uses this famous phrase about uh, God made us for himself, he made us for yourself, and our, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. So you see there, a true spirituality bringing wholeness and integration, but false spirituality leading to disintegration, and confusion and pain and error, says Augustine. Now, we're gradually building up on the categories here. So one more, and then we'll stop for a bit of a discussion and any questions of clarification and so on. I would say that a culture is a shared spirituality. Spirituality is not always individualistic. They can be um, social. They can be group things. A shared spirituality together with its characteristic artistic traditions. The, the worldview that um, beliefs and attitudes and, and actions, and part of those actions, will be creating things in your environmental circumstances. So they'll be affected by your available resources, for example, if you want to build a building. You know, do you have stone available or not? <laughs> will make a big influence on what kind of buildings you make. But so will your beliefs about society, culture, politics, and so on. Like spiritualities, therefore, because they're tied to spiritualities, cultures can be more or less integrated <coughs> or disintegrated. Now, I would believe and argue that Christian culture, a genuinely Christian culture, will be integrative, and non-Christian cultures ultimately disintegrative. I think the modernist rejection of God is profoundly disintegrative in that the more consistently one tries to live, or to, the more consistent one tries to be, theoretically, with the rejection of God, the deeper one is pushed into postmodernism. And, and this is the link. So within Christian premodernism, the foundation, everything stems from the belief in God, and the kind of God that he is. Modernism gets rid of that belief in God, but as we'll see, wants, wants to hold on to a lot of the things that within the Christian worldview actually depend upon God. But they want to hold on to those things. The postmodernists have quite, quite rightly pointed out that that's not consistent. That you can't get rid of the foundation and keep the upper story, to put it in Francis Schaeffer terms. You're just making an unjustified leap. But the key thing is that instead of going back to, well, we better bring God back in. The postmodernists have said, so we better get rid of the other story as well. <laughs> and then we're more consistent, in a sense. And I would say, yes, you are. <laughs> but you've gone off in the wrong direction. 
you need to bring back in God and then you can consistently have the things that the modernists, I think, quite rightly want, but don't have a proper foundation for. And that's the sort of, if there's one argument that I'm making in the overall seminar today, that is what I'm trying to illustrate as we understand the shifts in culture and how that plays out uh, from the philosophical level to the artistic level. Okay, let me pause there and see if you have uh, any questions or comments, anything you'd like me to clarify, and so on. So, once upon a time, beautiful, beautiful choral Christian music that speaks something about the beauty of God, the harmony of his creation, of the human voices made in his image, combining together to create beauty for his glory, and so on. And here, of course, Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting of the Last Supper, uh, with all its uh, glories of, of different expressions, and the sort of 3D nature, the structure of all the sight lines converge on the face of Christ. This is a painting that says, Jesus is the center. Jesus is really important. So it reflects a, a Christian pre-modern worldview. Here is a brief clip from the, uh, the first Disney version of Snow White. Who is the fairest one of all? Let's take that as a central spiritual question. Well, once upon a time, we looked into the pre-modern worldview mirror and we asked who is the fairest of them all. And our pre-modern mirror said, God is the fairest of them all. God is the maximally beautiful being who created the cosmos. I use, I use the word advisedly, not universe, cosmos. And from the Greek it means ordered beauty. That's why the word is used for cosmopolitan magazine, a beauty magazine. How <laughs> the word has fallen, but you know, originally. The ordered, the cosmos is made by God. And that God made humanity in his image only a little lower than the angels. Wow. Well, here is uh, Richard E. Grant, English thespian, uh, in the film With Nail I, in a scene where he is obviously feeling rather depressed, as you'll see, and he quotes a famous speech from the play Hamlet by William Shakespeare, a speech that I think gives a wonderfully balanced summary of the Christian view of human nature. So the delicious irony of the circumstance in which he quotes that speech from Hamlet about what a thing is man, you know, how noble, how in his rational aspects, how like an angel or a god, and so on. And yet, he's also reflecting his, his deep depression, um, his, his disconsolation with the human condition. Man delights me, nor, nor woman, nor woman neither. And he's there in the rain, 
drinking his sorrows away. You know, that is, I think, a very biblical reflection of human nature. We are great and wonderful and only a little lower than the angels, and yet we are fallen and disintegrating in our sins. And we are both. And we have this, this very balanced view of human nature. So, take the opportunity to gather into little groups of those that are around you and reflect upon the understanding of human humanity reflected uh, in the pre-modern worldview, in that uh, film clip, uh, in, in the music and so on. How does a pre-modern understanding of human humanity relate to its understanding of God as the sort of foundational concept of that worldview. How do the two relate to each other? How do they go together to form our understanding of our place in the world? I'll give you a little time to chat amongst yourselves and we'll have some feedback time. Okay. So let's draw back together. See, if anyone would like to feedback anything you, you thought was particularly interesting from the conversation. Uh, particularly saying anything that you'd like to to share and uh, main points or yes. Yes. I'm not just thinking. Um, maybe in uh, the main thing here uh, he just um, um, rejected everything um, that is from the world. And uh, just um, to focus on God. And he just exalted God and told uh, that God is um, um, for him and uh, is like uh, God and angels. It is my just, I mean, I we, we. Okay, interesting. So, the talking, talking, just repeat for the benefit of the video, so on. Yeah. Talking about where is, is Hamlet's focus. There. He's very disconsolate because of things in the world that are, you know, I'm not happy with this and that and the other, probably because of his circumstances. But everything he talks about is, it's a bit like Ecclesiastes. You know, everything's yeah. went under the sun. Yeah. He's looking here rather than looking up to God as, as his solution. Yeah. Anyone else? Anything? Like to okay, so we're beginning to get a, a, a sense for the Christian worldview. Now, I know, of course, we're Christians in this room, and we think, I already have a sense of the Christian worldview. I live, I, I live in it. Uh, but I think it's, it's, it's good to lay these foundations and explicitly sort of remind ourselves a little at the beginning, because it, it then makes the contrast as we move through uh, all the more uh, impactful. So I was talking about architecture earlier. This is a um, building I love from England, Salisbury Cathedral. A uh, very famous uh, cathedral in England. It's got the, uh, the tallest spire of a cathedral in Europe, I believe. It's at Salisbury. And uh, the first time I visited Salisbury Cathedral, I remember on a school trip, drawing up in the, in the car park in front of the, the main entrance here, looking at the building, and think, being really impressed by just how big this medieval building was. Uh, and then I noticed 
the size of a person next to it, and I kind of doubled <laughs> how impressed I was, because I sort of looked at the door and, and sort of, hey, that's big, and then I noticed how little the tiny person was next to the door, and I thought, hey, that is seriously impressive. They put a lot of effort into this. If a culture is going to put that much effort uh, into something, it's got to speak volumes about what is important uh, in that culture. Uh, we look at our culture today and the things that we put massive effort uh, into building. Uh, particle accelerators and shopping centers. Okay. <laughs> uh, Gothic, this is a Gothic cathedral. Actually, this is the font. It's a, a new, a newly installed just a couple of years ago font. Uh, it's there in the abbey, and you see it's in a cross form, and actually water is always flowing into the font and flowing out of the four corners of the font. So it's like the, the spring of life, and it's there gurgling away at the back of the cathedral. It's lovely. Um, Gothic cathedrals are some of the crowning achievements of Western architecture. They are more like giant sculptures than just buildings, says Levin. Every archway, every decoration has meaning and purpose. There's a view from the, the choir stalls. Um, you notice you have a choir stall on the left and one on the right, so you can have stereo sound. This is cutting edge technology, me media technology being used by the church in its day. Yeah. Stereo sound. Look at this, we've got full color display units installed here. They're called stained glass windows. <laughs> but we're using the cutting edge of technology of the day to do everything that we can to uh, communicate and, and speak of God and the gospel. Dr. Emmanuel Paparella, if I pronounce that correctly, notes that it was the monk, the monk's commitment to reading and writing and education which ensured the survival of Western civilization after the fall of the Roman Empire. They laid the foundations for European universities, universities came out of the cathedral system, and became the bridge between antiquity and modernity. This is in the, uh, the cloister of Salisbury Cathedral, and you, you can walk through this corridor that goes all the way around the four sides of this sort of Eden Edenic garden that they have there. The Indian Christian thinker Vishal Mangawadi says that the scientific perspective flowered in Europe as an outworking of medieval biblical theology nurtured by the church. The Bible created and underpinned the scientific outlook, and that's from his book, uh, The Book That Made Your World. Now it's fascinating reading, reading uh, as a Westerner, reading a book written by an Indian philosopher talking about the effect of the Bible on Western culture. Uh, and he picks up on this, you know, is why didn't science flower in India? I mean, it's not that Indians are less clever than Westerners. And he says it's something to do with the, the culture, i.e. the worldview ideas that are or are not conducive to the scientific uh, process. And here's an example of this from Salisbury Cathedral. Salisbury Cathedral are the proud owners of what is claimed to be the oldest working clock in the world. Uh, 
dated to around 1386, uh, 14th century mechanical clock. So there again, the church involved in supporting and using cutting edge technology. Well, here's a charming medieval illustration of, of God with Adam and Eve in the, the Garden of Eden, just to illustrate the fact that if you think that there's a rational, personal, creative God who has created the cosmos and who has created human beings in his image as rational, free, creative beings, albeit finite, well then one might well expect those human beings A, to understand something of the nature of God, not to comprehend God, but to be able to understand something of God, and indeed to be able to understand something of the cosmos that that God has made. Because, as it were, the way in which our minds are designed to work, and the way that the world works, both derive from one and the same rational, reliable, personal, creative source. And so you'd expect there to be a fit at this level of us being able to understand the natural world because of the theological concepts you expect to be able to do the scientific project. Of Alvin Planting, the American Christian philosopher, says, modern science arose within the bosom of Christian theism. It's a shining example of the powers of reason which God has created in us, a spectacular display of the image of God in us human beings. So Christians should be committed to taking science and the deliverances of contemporary science with the utmost seriousness. Of course, Plantinga will then very forcefully argue that you need to pay attention to some of the philosophical worldview beliefs that can affect how people do science. Particularly belief that there's no God, miracles can't happen. Um, we should not even consider allowing supernatural explanations for things that happen in the world and so on. He cautioned against that, but the basic point that, that science actually flowered from Christian theological roots, and so Christians should be seriously engaged in the scientific project. And here we have a photo of the, the inside of the cloister at Salisbury Cathedral. Leonardo da Vinci's painting of John the Baptist. Now, in one sense, this is a very straightforward pictorial representation. Uh, very programmatic art. But actually, I think this is very abstract, in a sense, as well. Because if you just look at the painting and you don't have a title, what, what do you see? You see a young man, woman, it's a bit difficult to tell, a young person, illuminated with some golden light from above, pointing up. So what what is this? What is this? And you get the title, John the Baptist. And you go, ah, I know what you're saying, Leonardo. You are saying this is someone who was illuminated by the divine light, whose task was to point us to 
the divine light, the light of the world. He is being illuminated by who is the light of the world? Oh, it's Jesus. Because of the context of the culture and so on, he can communicate those ideas. Those are all communicated. It's not just because we see, we don't literally see what Leonardo is telling us in the painting. Painting communicates at an abstract ideological kind of level because of what we see in the painting, you see. So art is, is more subtle than the sort of naive idea that some people can, can get that, oh, if it's a painting of the Virgin and Child, well, then it's, then it's Christian, and uh, you know, if it's just a painting of some guy with some light shining on him, well, then that must be non-Christian. <laughs> You know, um, clearly this is a Christian work of art. You know, it comes out of Leonardo's spirituality. So culture at this stage assumed and pointed to the existence of of objective, transcendent, transcendental values, values by which you can measure all sorts of things in different uh, areas of study, uh, values of truth and goodness and beauty uh, as objective. Um, and if you want to pursue uh, the idea of beauty being ob objective, which is the strangest thing to say in our culture, uh, even within some church circles, uh, there's a whole chapter of that in my book, A Faithful Guide to Philosophy. Uh, I think the church has done an excellent job in modern times of holding on to the concept of truth when it's being denied by postmodernists and so on, and holding on to the idea of objective goodness because you know, we need the idea of sin <laughs> in our theology. Um, nothing to be saved from if there is no sin. Um, so we hold on to truth and goodness, but we have done a much worse job in the Western church of holding on to beauty uh, and its place in theology and, and liturgy. Still, this is the pre-modern Christian worldview. And one last example of this before we then move on and see where culture has gone, where the rejection of God has uh, led us till today. Two things here, and then I'll have a meditation upon it. One is another piece of artwork from the Japanese Christian uh, painter, Makoto Fujiwara. And the title of this piece is Grace Foretold. Grace Foretold. And again, seemingly very abstract, but I think as you meditate upon it and the title, uh, you'll see what he's saying over it. And I've paired this uh, with the, the, the words that are here on the left uh, from a piece of music I'm going to play you by a British Christian band uh, with uh, Celtic kind of roots. They combine sort of Celtic folk music with prog rock music. Sorry if that happens not to be your kind of music, uh, but I hope you'll find something to uh, appreciate in the illustration and in the words and the combination with the, the artwork here. And I'll, we'll just listen to this, meditate upon it, have a discussion, have some feedback, and then perhaps uh, we'll have a toilet break. Okay? Here we here we go. Ladies and gents. Sorry, I have to make sure we keep moving along to get everything in. Um, reflections, what do you, you make of the, the words, the music, the art, the combination, anything you'd like to, to chuck in? Did you explain the picture? Uh, I can give my, my take on it. Does anyone have a, have a take on it they'd like to? Yeah. 
sapete? Blue is often used as heavenly and white yeah. as being the result of grace, but I don't really mm -hmm. understand it. Yeah, okay, so blue is often used to represent heavenly, white. We're talking about grace, so I've seen it's been washed away, but we've whitened stone, etc. Whiter than white. Uh, this is a transition in the, uh, in the picture from the dark side to, to the white, to the snow white. That, yeah. that, is, that is grace for grace that comes into our fallen world mm -hmm. personally and makes us uh, acceptable for God, then uh, it, uh, it makes us uh, acceptable to the snow white world, mm. to the other reality, to the next reality. Great. So it, our friend's talking about there's a transition mm -hmm. pictured in the painting where grace comes into our lives from the heavenlies. We've got the, this, the, the golden the glory of God up here. Grace is poured. It's like your cup will flow over. I pour my grace upon you. The blessings of the Lord pouring down on you like oil, etc. It's kind of biblical images. Pouring down the blue, coming in. The water giving, giving life. The water of life green and, and white, um, fruitfulness and cleanliness coming upon our lives out of the glory of God, being poured upon us. Yeah. I can see the whole fallen, the story of the whole fallen world yeah. in the picture, from the white till the white, between the, between the, the sin and redemption, mm -hmm. and then the whole, uh, whole atonement and accepting yeah. of God. Yeah, so it's about atonement and wonderful. And it's, you see now how this goes so well, I think, with the, the words of the, of the song and acts of miracles for my own, which again is, is talking about how God can transform our lives and our world, but, but like that with the LLI clip, has this very balanced Christian view. It's not saying, oh, I know God and Jesus in my life, so everything's wonderful, whoopee, you know? It's talking about things that appear to have died when all is restored. I'm looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth in an atmosphere. When courage rises up, the power of fear is defeated in love. But we have to wrestle with the power of fear uh, in the love of God. A love that will heal, that will restore, etc. Seeing what can become when faith is alive, here and now. But in the meantime, and it settles, because the music settles on this last line, for the majority of the song, just this one line, again and again, our king is here with us. Not only are we looking forward to the last judgment of the new heavens, and then God will set everything right in the end, so I can, you know, power on now, but God is, our king is with us in it, here and now working to transform. Yeah, Peter, you had a hand up. Yeah, we were kind of struggling to know how the uh, kind of perhaps uh, gothic structure or whatever it is uh, that's kind of being captured there. Now, we couldn't kind of fit that into the, how does that flow into the whole picture? Can you, can you help me unpack that? Are uh, you referring back to the suffering on the, the Gothic cathedral? No, the picture the, the, in the water, you know, on the right, it's like, in a, like a building, you see. Boxes. Yes. 
I may or may not get operatic music. I think it's perfectly consistent to say, I, I was never brought up listening to that kind of thing. I don't, I don't like it, subjectively. I don't get it. But were someone who really loves that music to sit down with me and give me an education in it, I expect they could help me to see things in that music that I would then go, oh, now I get it. Now I see that there is beauty here. And indeed, the very fact that I notice that a lot of people in the world do happen to appreciate that music on the principle of, of, of sort of generosity and credulity would tend to make me think there's probably something good there that they have noticed. I would say to be beautiful, for something to be beautiful, you can you can tell that because you are within your moral rights to subjectively appreciate it. Uh, and and the notion of, of being within your moral rights given that morality is objective, immediately then ties the notion of goodness to beauty. And of course ties back to truth, because you're saying, when it, when you're saying it is beautiful, it is good. It is good that I appreciate this. I might not be under a moral obligation to appreciate it. That's different. But if I do appreciate it, I'm not doing anything wrong, you see. Um, whereas I think you, you, could, you could think of examples where there are there plenty of examples you can give of, of things that would be wrong for you to aesthetically appreciate. Um, yeah, but that, that takes us a little bit off track. But if you want more on this, uh, uh, go to my book, uh, A Faithful Guide uh, to Philosophy, and there's a chapter on aesthetics uh, in there. So, um, here's where we make a transition. We've laid the foundations of our thinking, we've looked at uh, what it feels like to inhabit the Christian worldview, some of the key elements of that expressing itself in various works of art from around the world. And then one day, culture turned its back on God and looked into the modernist worldview mirror, if you like, and asked this question, who is the fairest of them all? And the modernist mirror uh, said something like this. According to science, which is the only way to know anything, man is the fairest of them all. Remember this back in the Enlightenment zone, so man is the fairest of them all. Uh, although an unverifiable term, a value term like fair, is of course merely an expression of your emotion, subjectively speaking, um, man is the most rational being to have arisen via the blind watchmaker of Neo-Darwinian evolution. Uh, man is a child of mother nature, who will soon come of age and reject those childish religious superstitions of man's cradlehood. So something like this. You all know the story. This is the official story of our modern culture. And here is uh, a reflection, an expression, I think, of that modern culture uh, in the music video for the song The Second Law by Muse from the album Second Law. Uh, they're talking about the second law of thermodynamics. So we'll please the scientists in the room. A uh, combination of some science and some art here. Uh, Muse doing a whole song. Not many bands do songs about the laws of thermodynamics. <laughs> Flanders and Swan back in the day did one. Uh, but uh, a modern secular pop group Muse from the UK talking about the law of second dynamics and how the sort of scientific view of the world See what they're saying about the sort of anxieties 
that are in the modernist worldview about society and culture and humanity and human nature that's communicated through through the music and the, the words and the, the imagery here. I think it is fascinating stuff. <laughs> that is not happy music. Let's at least put it that way. Let's have a, a chat to see what we make of the, of the second law by means. I had some very interesting comments in conversations. Have I been snooping in on you? <laughs> so do share. Um, anything that, that strikes you, really, but what this communicates about the anxieties of modernist culture, what sort of society modernism produces, and so on. Yes, Lee? If you, could, if you compare it to the the pre-modern with, with, with God in the picture, you, you are kind of there is no there is no place to be. You are you are nowhere. You are you are you are lost. You are you are you look up in the universe. There's nothing. There's no one there. You look around. There are other people, but they are as lost as you. So it's you have to run like in the woods. Those guys that just running, just yeah. doing something. Because if you stop and think. It's really uh, uh, it's it's uh, you can't do that because it's so you see how dark it is, how meaningless, yeah. how purposeless. Meaningless, purposeless, no place for humanity, no place of sense of security. It's just running, in, running in order to stand still, almost sense running, but. The whole society is 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 running towards you know uh, this sort of capitalist using the resources of the world for technological advancement and so on. And yet, the more we run, the more advanced we become, the sooner it's all going to end. We're, we're just to to develop humanity is simply to bring our end upon ourselves all the more swiftly. And yet that's what we're kind of obsessed with, yeah. And I think from there, the scientists is about thermodynamics here. Mm. Yeah, this shows that the society is very chaotic and the chaos is prevailing somehow. But I would be more provocative saying, is that not every time that we are just feeling a bit in such a chaos. I mean, even if we think, I mean, okay, when you see it on the cathedral, it's, it's beauty in our But I mean, if you think about the, I don't know, first years of war or something, so that these people have no the feeling of chaos somehow in their life, or, or even if you think about our times, yeah, like this chaos, I mean, when you are not focusing really on God, yeah, so that, yeah. I mean, I mean, what we are living now, I mean, our situation, yeah, the Europe is broken, yeah, the, the Russia is, is, is showing in, in the aggression, you know, the, the courts of, of, let's say, kind of the uh, uncivilized uh, people are, are approaching Europe, and, and although, I mean, that's our, our, our let's say, Christian, Christian duty to help them, but somehow you feel like, like the, the wrong people, under the attack of our bias somehow, yeah. And 
I'm, I feel completely. It's not only modern, that this is the, somehow it's a main condition of a, of a, of a human life. Yes. That we feel completely lost without God. Yeah? Yeah. If we do not have it is encouraging the God is sitting on the throne. Right? When, when, when one does not have this, this without book of revelation, or because yes. book of revelation actually shows, shows it completely. Right? Yeah. I mean, everybody, everything falling down, everything is, I mean, the blood and the, and the stars falling down. And, and only God sitting on the top of the throne is probably the most important thing in the book of Revelation. So our friend is saying everything, it's always been the case that everything falls down when you take God out of the picture. Uh, and there's nothing specifically about the you know, modern scientific discoveries about the nature of thermodynamics or so on, per se, that leads to this anxiety communicated in the video. But rather, it's that understanding combined with there being no God in the picture. Because, of course, when they made Salisbury Cathedral, they were using up useful resources and doing work that hastened the heat death of the universe. They didn't. And they knew by then that the universe was going to end. Well, because God was going to bring it to end in order to create the new heavens and the new earth. Hallelujah! You know? So there's there's hope and there's a point to it all. But now you've got rid of that hopeful horizon and we're just left with everything is falling apart. And even anything that we do to improve ourselves through science. You know, science promises to improve our lives and so on. But actually the more it tries to do that, the sooner we're all gonna be dead. <laughs> yeah, yes. I think there are things. The first is the universe is not uh, on the subject of um, exaltation and uh, uh, to be joyful mm. of uh, uh, God, that God is creator, mm. and we have to be, we have to lift Him up, mm. and we have to be as part of God mm. lifted up. Of course, joyful, joy and yeah, life and heaven in the earth. Mm. The second thing is that uh, the universe is only subject of researches. They have to do, have to do study, study some. And the universe, they like to, to discover something, scientists. But God knows everything. Uh, the the um, human being, or human being, is God. And uh, he just uh, is exactly himself. Yeah. Very, very good points here. Um, that with God out of the picture, nature itself just becomes something to use for our ends, and it's no longer seen as something that is, I don't know, the second book of Revelation, as it were, something that reflects its creator to us. Nature doesn't speak of anything beyond itself. Yes. It, it, it no longer has that value as being able to be seen as, in itself, a work of art made by God. It simply becomes a, a resource, uh, something of instrumental value rather than intrinsic value, I think you're, you're saying, aren't you? Yes, sir. I, I suppose also at the core of the music video there is a, a profound tension because the, the, to the extent that you wish to build on the analogy of the second law, second law effectively is going to run down its heat death, it's cool. Whereas actually the energy level in the video itself 
Yes. Is going in the opposite direction, uh, at least as I as I kind of came to me. Uh, it's, it's it's moving faster. It's moving more aggressively, uh, becoming uh, more assertive, which in a way is an inverse parallel to the yes. the, the, the simple sort of scientific data. Um, so I'm not quite sure whether that's actually trying to communicate something about the intrinsic tension of uh, the current following out of what we believe is higher activity. Yeah. But actually, the fact is it will lead to, well, that's right. Yeah, there, I'm not sure yeah, what yeah, I, yeah, no, I think I agree with you. I think that there is an irony in the fact that this, this music video, in a sense, is, is warning us about this problem, and yet, of course, this is part of the problem. <laughs> if they hadn't <laughs> produced this video and they'd all sat there calmly for a while, of course, the universe would last that little bit longer. You know, <laughs> probably wouldn't make an appreciable difference. But it makes a difference according to the laws of physics, doesn't it? So, yeah, there, there is something sort of ironic and sort of self-knowing about that. Um, which some people might view as, as an aspect of, of postmodernism about it, that sort of self knowing irony. Um, but, uh, but Pete, I think that for, for, for me, uh, the, it's also talking about, if you like, the inherent lie that there is. Mm. In other words, that which you believe is going to give rise to freedom mm. uh, and progress, whatever that means. In, in, inevitably go the other way, yes. lead to death. Yeah. So what you think is a route to, mm. to a grander, more fulfilled life and so on, is actually a certain route to death. Yes. Not even a speculative, yeah. it's a certain So at that, at that level as well, you can view this video as a postmodern critique of the modernist worldview. Oh, right. Yes. So although we're talking about modernism, there are, there are several ways, and as we'll see, that actually they, they're closely tied uh, together. Um, but of course, even though it has that critique, as we say, it's ironic that it's, it's part of the problem, maybe that's self-knowing, but also here they are, they're, they're making money as a commercial enterprise, as well as an artistic enterprise, off the, off the back of, of warning us all about this problem of consumerism, <laughs> dominating our lives that actually promises freedom, but as they're saying in the video, doesn't actually ultimately deliver on the freedom to humanity that scientific consumerism offers. And what have they offered but a piece of highly scientifically constructed electronic music consumerism? So the irony is running in all sorts of directions here at the same time, absolutely. Um, atheist Michael Roos, in his recent book, Atheism, What Everyone Needs to Know, says, if you become a non-believer, then you have left the security of your childhood, typical enlightenment imagery. There is no ultimate meaning, and secular attempts to find a substitute, whether in philosophy or shopping, simply aren't going to do it. It is gone forever, he says. Or Alex Rosenberg in The Atheist's Guide to Reality gives this sort of creed, almost, at the beginning of his book. I think this is, a, from my point of view, I think this is a very honest summary of a materialist worldview. It says, is there a God? No. 
what is the nature of reality? What physics says it is, full stop. What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto, I, there is none. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Is there a soul? Are you kidding? Is there free will? Not a chance. What happens when we die? Well, everything pretty much goes on as before, except us. What is the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no moral difference between them, says. Yes? I would like to, to compare this as a uh, conclusion of the modernism, let's say, mm. with the, let's say, the assumption. I mean, if you come back maybe to, I mean, also for some other people who are starting the, mm. let's say, idea of uh, enlightenment, surely you can find the, the, the pictures of coming to the paradise. I mean, mm. they will educate people, other people will be nice, there will be peace in the world. Yeah. I mean, this is somehow, <laughs> I mean, probably what it would be very interesting, just to compare mm. what, what, what they have promised mm. and what, what, what they eventually yeah. landed. Yeah, what the Enlightenment Project promised and where it has ended up. Yeah. Of course, I, I should note that it, it's a sort of a somewhat uh, out of date view now uh, among scholars to have this view that says the Enlightenment was intrinsically an atheistic, anti God sort of project. Um, more recent historians of ideas have said that that's because people in the past have focused too much on the French Enlightenment in particular which had those aspects. And then of course we need to recognize that plenty of leading figures within the Enlightenment were Christians. Yeah, Emmanuel Kant, John Locke, George Berkeley, etc., etc., Isaac Newton um, were Christians. Uh, Christian humanism, uh, as opposed to secular humanism, was also part of the Enlightenment project. Indeed, that Enlightenment imagery is use, the use of biblical imagery isn't it? Uh, a reclamation of, of ancient uh, culture and value of the, the Greeks and the Bible, even in sort of um, uh, the biblical times, recognizing the combination of being able to express the gospel and the categories of Greek philosophy that you see in John's gospel or in the works of Paul and so on. Yes, Peter, you've got it. Well, I, I, it's interesting. I'm obviously up on the third and I can't get to it, but you may, you may know better than I. Uh, Peter Van Inwagen mm -hmm. from Notre Dame, uh, he, he has a a, a lovely, what to me, a, a lovely little piece because he's sharing his testimony and kind of a personal explanation of his life because he didn't begin life as a Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, and now, of course, he's kind of become a probably uh, ranking up there with Alvin Van Tinker, and he's certainly in the same place in Notre Dame as he was. But uh, he has a, a statement to the effect that enlightenment has its creed that this is it. Mm -hmm. And then he starts off, his first words are, there is no God. Yeah. Now, I, I, you, you may, you may know that better than I do. Um, but to me, it's actually a very punchy, clear, creedal statement. Uh, but it's not really. Uh, I mean, hey, I'm not a philosopher, and so I'm relying on the the sort of integrity of what that environment is saying. But he's actually not giving any scope in his mm. summation of what the creed is. Uh, other than there is no problem. Yeah, yeah. But it's true, that stream is there in the Enlightenment, but what, what 
more contemporary scholars of the era would say is that um, because the historians of the era, those who told us about the environment and culture, were themselves part of that stream of the, that atheist stream of the Enlightenment, they portrayed the whole Enlightenment as being on their side, as it were. Mm-hmm. As, you know, we are now children of the Enlightenment, and of course the Enlightenment is all about giving up God and yada yada yada. Um, whereas in the Enlightenment era itself, it wasn't, it was partly, in some places, sometimes about that. Um, but but historians will now talk about this wasn't just any such monolithic thing as the Enlightenment. There were Enlightenments, Enlightenment movements with differences going on all at the same time. Um, but that, certainly historians later on portrayed it as, in a way, favourable to their uh, secular worldview. Yeah. But Ben Edward is alive. Yes, so yes. He's a contemporary, contemporary. Yes. But he's a philosopher, not a historian of yes. ideas. No, I was, I was actually <laughs> thinking that because when you mentioned humanism, of course, if you talk about humanism, you you you, you, you go back, obviously, to the, the pre-Reformation. And right. what gave us the Reformation yeah. is you, was humanism. Yeah, and Rasmus and yeah, so exactly. on. So. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, Rosenberg, just to finish up before coffee break, says individual human life is meaningless, without purpose, without ultimate moral value. Just face, need to face the fact that that kind of nihilism is true. You can't create purpose in a world that doesn't have any. That's like trying to build a perpetual motion machine, it says, after you've discovered that nature's ruled them out. And if that seems hard to take, he says, there's always Prozac. <laughs> And that's not just a throwaway, clever, clever remark, because later on at the end of the book, he comes back to this point and again says, he says, what should we scientific folks do when overcome by world weariness? Weltschmerz. Ruined that word, sorry. The world weariness. He says, take two of whatever neuropharmacology prescribes. Because after all, you know, you don't have a mind, you just are your brain and your brain functions according to its neurochemical, electrical properties. So you know, if you're depressed, well, you know, take some drugs. Now, of course, it can be good to take some drugs when you're depressed under the guidance of your doctor and so on. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not anti-drug taking. I've had depression myself in the past, and I've found it very useful to take some drugs in combination with having counseling, etc. But for him, that is the be-all and end-all. That is kind of the answer to the sort of existentialist philosophical angst displayed in that sort of angry kinetic music from Muse, a sort of, oh, my place in the world and we're all doomed and everything, I'm, I'm, what, what, what can I do about this? It's not, well, let's, let's do some philosophy or turn to religion or, or spirituality. Or it's, or take some drugs. And that's the proper modernist kind of uh, response here. Our our time is up, coffee break is here. Uh, (laughs) We can chat over coffee, or you can can drop it in at the beginning of the session when we start up again. (laughs) Thank you very much. So you may notice that in the modernist worldview, you end up getting this um, divide, this split in thinking between facts and values. And although at the beginning of this move to sort of get rid of God, you can see a, a, a desire for hanging on to morality, uh, human rights, individual dignity, etc. 
and that is at odds also with the modernist split between facts and values. Now, I think there are facts about values. That's the traditional pre-modern view. But for modernists, in various ways, uh, they end up with a split between these two things. Particularly germane here is the whole idea of, of scientism uh, that Alex Rosenberg talks about in his book, the idea that science is the only way to know anything reliably. Uh, because you soon notice that, of course, science doesn't tell you about values. You know, science will tell me how much poison I need to put in Aunt Mabel's teapot this afternoon in order to inherit her country estate by the end of the week. Uh, how much poison will, will do her in. But science and experimentation is not going to tell me whether that makes me a good or a bad son-in-law or whatever. Um, so scientism is very uh, dominant in Western culture, this view. As Rosenberg says, treating science as our exclusive guide to reality, or at least as our most reliable guide to reality. We trust science as the only way to acquire knowledge, he says. Or Richard Dawkins puts all beliefs into one of two categories. On the one hand, he says there's proper, evidence-based belief. And then you have rational beliefs, if and only if those beliefs are based on evidence. And on the other hand, um, he refers that evidence to ultimately to empirical uh, observation. And on the other hand, he says there's the improper methodology of blind faith. Um, which he treats as almost one word, as if blind were a sort of redundant qualifier. The new atheists in particular talk about faith as automatically and necessarily a matter of blind faith. He, he defines faith this way, as faith is believing in something when there literally isn't a scrap of evidence. If there were a scrap of evidence, then it wouldn't be faith. It would be proper evidence-based, maybe very weakly based, but at least evidence-based. Or. Uh, Another British New Atheist chemist, Peter Atkins, says, I stand by my claim that the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality, only way of, acquire, of acquiring reliable knowledge. Now that's interesting because this quote from Peter Atkins is from his most recent book on being, you know, just a couple of years ago. Um, he's had this position for a long time he had it when he debated the Christian philosopher William Lane Craig uh, in 1998. He's debated him more recently uh, since as well in the UK. But here's a clip from the 1998 debate between Craig and Atkins when they're having a discussion time after the fall debate in which this issue of scientism uh, that dominates Atkins' position comes up. And uh, Craig uh, does a very nice uh, dismantling of the scientific position um, from which Atkins clearly has learnt nothing. So plenty of examples of things that were rational to believe, but which you can't justify on the basis of evidence. So you know, Dawkins, one of two categories, this really falls apart. The scientific demand, scientistic, sorry, demand, that every rational belief in order to count as rational must be justified by evidence is actually, it's self-contradictory. If you apply that rule to itself, well, it doesn't meet its own expectation. That rule can't be justified by evidence. So it's a self-contradictory philosophical assertion. 
Another way of looking at that is, is to think about the fact that that rule, if you held to it, Dawkins' rule, if you held to it, would produce, would entail an infinite regress that could never be satisfied. If you say, in order for belief A to be rational, I've got to have some evidence for it that supports it. Cool. So belief A, B, evidence that supports B, belief A. But of course, in order for my belief in the existence of evidence B, and my belief that the existence of evidence B does support A, in order for that belief to be rational, I've got to have some evidence for it, C. But for my belief in C to be rational, I've got to have some evidence for it. What? You could never fulfill that demand for evidence. Now, obviously, there are times and places where a demand for evidence is perfectly legitimate and required. But what this shows is that that kind of belief based upon evidence cannot be the only rational way of knowing things. Indeed, ultimately, that can't be at the foundation of how we know things. There must be other ways of knowing. Um, and as Craig was pointing out when he was using counterexamples like, well, what about moral beliefs? What about aesthetic beliefs? What about just the rational insight that the law of non-contradiction in logic is true and reliable, or that 2 plus 2 equals 4, or whatever? Um, some of those things you can't argue for, the truth of the laws of logic, because you'd have to assume their truth in order to argue for them, which would be question-begging, which is invalid in logic. And yet, we just have this rational insight. We just know certain things, that we have to be things that we know and that we can argue from to other things without having to argue for them, because it's literally impossible to argue for everything, you see. And so this, this scientism that says science is the only way to know anything is ultimately a self-contradictory position that is therefore deeply anti-scientific. It would undermine the entire scientific enterprise if you tried to stick with it. So scientism, far from being justified by science, is actually, when you think about it, contradicted by science and our ability to do science, which, as we saw earlier, of course, comes out of a theological worldview. Any questions about uh, scientism and the fact uh, value distinction that, uh, that modernism imposes upon us? Uh, good. Okay, one more uh, cultural example in modernism. Um, we started with some architecture. Let's look at some modernist architecture. Uh, Le Corbusier, uh, nicknamed the Crow, a French architect. French architect who coined the famous phrase that houses are, as he called them, machines to live in. This is what a house is. It's a machine to live in. A very modernist, sort of scientific kind of way of looking at things. Which you can see is probably based on a very sort of modernist, scientific only kind of understanding of what people are and how society should be organized and so on. We want, you know, the efficient, organized, scientific society kind of thing. So we all live in our very efficiently stacked, organized, identical, easy to reproduce, 
boxes. But even there, you can see the, the, the longing of the human heart for a little bit of beauty and aesthetic and difference and individuality coming through. Because why are there these little bits of different color? <laughs> I'll here, painted on, onto the concrete. It would be much more efficient. Not only even have that there, to paint it all the same color, wouldn't it? Have, have it gray. That's nice and efficient, um, but not very pretty. <laughs> <laughs> So houses are machines to, to live in, for, for the human machine to live in. And yet, there's something about the human machine that seems to long for things that machines shouldn't long for, if that is the be-all and end-all of human nature. Um, I think it's fascinating how um, the city and how architecture is, is used in, in television and film stories and so on, in media. Uh, sort of as a character to give an atmosphere to a story. C.S. Lewis talked about the way in which you revisit your favorite stories in order to re-inhabit a certain world or atmosphere, a certain feeling of that world. You don't go back and read Lord of the Rings in order to discover what happens, unless you've got a very bad memory. You know, so you don't reread an Agatha Christie crime novel in order to work out who done it, because you already know on the second time through. But you might nonetheless reread it because you just love those characters and that world and that setting, that atmosphere, that feeling. Um, and architecture and the city is particularly used to give atmosphere and feeling. And in, in, in modern culture, uh, it is actually the opening uh, credit scene uh, from the series one of uh, the crime drama The Bridge, the Swedish crime down on the bridge, uh, in which the, the filming of the city as a sort of extra character in the story that gives a, a very kind of ominous feeling to the whole thing. I think you'll, you'll see if we watch uh, this uh, opening credit scene from uh, the bridge. And then you're into the crime drama. But the atmosphere has been set of this and we, we do see a windmill and the statue, pre-modern, but everything else is this very sort of at nighttime, sodium-light-soaked, concrete, modernist, sparse, industrial, that lone figure that we see smoking against the, the out-of-focus light is the sort of lonely individual in the heart of the big, bad city. Um, the city where you can be a stranger to lots of other people and, and as the series goes on it, it develops crime stories based upon the idea of various social tensions between different groups with different ideologies within society who, because they're in a city, are, are living and, and uh, you know, rubbing shoulders with people with ideologies that they disagree with and this leads to the crimes because we don't have a sort of society in which we all know one another and we're all sort of um, based on the same worldview or the same ideology or what have, what have you. Um, and the makers, I watched one of the making of documentaries from uh, one of the series, and they talked about the way in which whenever they showed nature in the series, they didn't want it to be beautiful. Uh, they wanted to show a kind of nature that humanity has divorced itself from in the city, um, that, is, that is sparse and kind of alienated from humanity. Um, and various cultures within the city 
are alienated from one another. And it's only the police characters who go from one culture to another, from one social class to another as they're doing their investigation. And so sort of anxiety about human life in the city is a big sort of um, literary filmic theme, particularly in, in crime drama and so on. And this sort of modernist architecture, they're using it there and our feelings about it to say something about our unsettled feeling about the way culture and society is going. And I think that's fascinating, an excellent series, not for the weak of heart, <laughs> the bridge, I have to say, but, but really compelling crime drama that, that's saying something about uh, contemporary culture. Science fiction, and a whole other category of film, but still you can see the way in which Ridley Scott in the opening scene of Blade Runner here, again, sets up the whole sort of mood and feeling of the world that you're going to enter in a, in a futuristic crime drama this time, uh, using this sort of industrial, uh, very modernistic, scientific, science fiction, scientific uh, kind of view of the city, and again, the anxiety of the city. Lovely. My, my heart sings at seeing some proper old-fashioned model work in film rather than CGI. Um, perfect marriage of the music from Van Gallis there and the, you know, the electronica score from Van Gallis and the, uh, the artistry of the miniature work there. Going to and from seeing the city and seeing it reflected in the eyeball of what turns out to be the main character, Harrison Ford's character in the film. But also this linking of old of this sort of pyramid kind of structure where the, the baddie of the piece uh, lives. Um, and yet this sort of very industrialized advance back to sort of muse and a lot of this sort of industrial imagery uh, and so on. And the idea of the, 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 again, the lonely individual looking out upon the, the sort of modernistic scientific culture um, that is kind of dwarfing the individual. Uh, as well. And you might think, well, hey, it's science fiction uh, and so on, but if I show you this picture, the giant LCD screen here, the advertising, the skyscrapers, the polluted atmosphere of the futuristic industrialized city, and this picture of the giant LCD screen in the polluted atmosphere of the skyscraping industrialized future city, and tell you that, of course, this picture is from Blade Runner, and this picture is from Beijing today. <laughs> Apart from the flying cars, <laughs> we're kind of, we're, in a sense, we're already living in that futuristic world that Ridley Scott's film uh, depicts. Final uh, cultural example in, in modernism before we move on to looking at postmodernism. So now the, the, the musical artist Stuart John Willie Wollstone Home, 1947 to 2010, um, did some solo albums later on in, in his career, uh, including this song called Blood and Bones. And he went round um, uh, an exhibition, and there's a photo here from the uh, exhibition that he went round. Um, it was an exhibition of human cadavers that had been preserved and uh, set up in various sort of tableau situations at varying degrees of sort of autopsy, if you like. And it was an exhibition showing people the workings of the human body, what sort of, what sort of inside us. 
And clearly, going around this exhibition, he was mulling over the modernist, sort of scientistic, scientific, materialistic, reductive, kind of thin understanding of what a person is in a worldview that gets rid of God, and so we can't be made in the image of God. We can't be made a little lower than the angels, because there are no angels, and there is no God, and no one who made us. And we are just this product, this unforeseen, unintended product of the material world. Doesn't it follow from that that we're just material objects? And going around this exhibition and just seeing like, the workings, the biological but mechanical workings of the human body, he begins to reflect upon what is a human being? What does our culture think a human being is? And what do I think a human being is? As we go through the lyrics here, I think it's a fascinating meditation. And you'll see where he starts bringing in some religious imagery uh, towards uh, the end here. Uh, so here's Blood and Bones by uh, William Lissacow. <coughs> so let me again give you some time to discuss uh, among yourselves the, the very interesting things, very interesting things that are going on in that song. And then we'll feedback and then we'll move on to So here we have, as it were, the other side of that uh, Cabusier coin, the main machines for living in because machines are going to live in those machines. Uh, that's why you make machines for living in. Are we just machines? Are we nothing more than blood and bone? There's a, a strong wrestling with that issue in this song, isn't there? Any reflections that you'd like to pass our direction? When they the lyrics of the song, explain how, how the people think about their life or maybe they think just only about their body, not about something in. If there's no soul, so then there's no hope. Just body, flesh and bones and, and that's like very mm, good. <laughs> maybe or yeah, something like not connect with reality, just connect only with something you can see, but not you can live. Yes, and reducing us to just something you can see, but nothing beyond that. Because of course you've got this, this scientism glasses on that say only things that you can see are going to touch. So that's what's real, and, and nothing beyond that can be real. And yet you see that divide, that, that struggle in here. It says in the chorus, it seems to me there's something more. And yet at the end of the song, it is Requiem Eternum, Requiem, Requiem. Humanity, as we thought of him, is, is dead. This, this, it's, it's, not only in Nietzschean terms, God is dead, but man is dead. Yeah. Man as we thought he was when we thought people were beings with souls created in the image of yeah. God and so on. Now that understanding of man is dead. Yeah. And we, we have to we have to live with that. It may seem to you that there's something more. You may feel that this is an unsatisfying view of humanity, yeah. but you've got to get used to it because this is what science has shown, you know, 
look, that's what we are. That's it, full stop. The soul is chronic of empty and empty heart. Yeah, yes. That, that, there's that, again, that heart, that desire in the human, made in the image of God, for something more that will fit within the materialistic, the modernist, the scientistic way of viewing things. Uh, and yet, rather than, than follow that intuition of something more, rather than saying, it seems to me that there are moral values, that rainbows are beautiful, that the Holocaust was evil, that, that I have individual dignity and rights and meaning and purpose. Maybe that's true. Maybe scientism is too restrictive. Well, if you buy, if you buy into the modernist worldview, if you buy into scientism and so on, you have to say, I have to give up all of that. I have to say a requiem for what I thought I was, for my aspirations of transcendence and so on. And I just have to get used to it. And how sort of sad and, and full of angst that world then becomes, you know. Uh, yes, sir. But it's really interesting that that uh, you know it is visible in the, the echo that there is thinking behind that uh, statement. But thinking can be quite dangerous mm. uh, in itself because of uh, the Second Corinthians uh, chapter seven verse ten that for God is work repentance after salvation, a repentance which brings uh, to regret. By the sorrow of the word, work of death. That means if I I think without hope, without yeah. something else that I can see in itself mm. uh, of the world materially. Yes. That brings me to a kind of depression and yeah. living life yeah. to death. Absolutely. The Bible analyzes this. I mean, in some sense, it's a lot of the book of Ecclesiastes is about this. Yeah. Everything is, is wind under heaven. If you don't consider the transcendent, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. You know? That's why it's really interesting that there is noise everything. Offices, homes, kitchens, everything, because People don't like to think because thinking is, can be quite dangerous mm. because it can lead to such sort of consequences. Yes, yeah. I mean, think about the way in which you know entertainment, entertainment culture, and the, the sort of uh, the clubbing culture. What, what you do at the end of your work week, you've earned enough money as a cog in the corporate industrial machine of society to earn enough money to leave one office factory block yeah. cube and go to another cube filled with other people that are going to spend their money so that they can give themselves an experience filled with, with intoxicants, drink, drugs, and lights, and loud music, so that anything else is swamped out. You can't, they're not environments designed for thinking and reflecting. Now, I'm not saying, of course, there's nothing wrong with music and, and dance and, and entertainment and, and so on, but a lot of people get into this sort of cycle of you work, you look forward to the end of the week so that you can have this sort of experience outside of yourself not thinking about your workaday week because you don't want to reflect and live in your life 
you know, live for the weekend. We have the, the phrase in, in the UK. Um, and we cater to this. Um, it was, I think, Blaise Pascal who said, you know, man's happiness consists in this, that he can't spend an hour quietly by himself. <laughs> because you'd think about it too much, and that would be too depressing, as you say. So we, you know, we want a spirituality where you can be happy if you have to sit by yourself for an hour. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and that doesn't mean you know, having to be on your iPhone and Twitter and phone and watching a video on your tablet. And <laughs> if you were just left to your own resources, you know, you know, for some of the young people today, young people today, you know. Uh, <laughs> but culture is going more and more that way of just feeding you information and advertising and messages from other people, filling up your time with distractions, inconsequential distractions. Um, yeah. So, and one day, once upon a time, we looked into the postmodernist worldview mirror and asked, who is the fairest of them all? And the fascinating thing with the new version of Snow White is the way in which the Snow White character takes on a messianic dimension in, in, in the story still, even in these modern, postmodern uh, times. Um, that is played up more. Rather than, I mean, of course, in the traditional fairy tale, you know, Prince who comes and raises the dead Snow White to life through the kiss of true love and so on. It is, it is an allegory of Christ saving humanity. You know, the Prince of Peace coming to raise fallen humanity through his love for them, having them eaten the poisoned apple, you know, etc. So those biblical resonances are there in the, in the traditional folktale. Um, played down in the original Disney version that will include magic in the transcendent but won't talk about religion, openly, generally speaking. And yet the messianic dimensions of, of, of the Snow White character are increased in, in the modern telling, which is interesting in and of itself. But this postmodern mirror mirror on the wall replies something like this, and this includes quite a lot of quotations from postmodernists. Um, although words only mean whatever they mean to you, I'd say that if I can get my colleagues to let me get away with saying that I'm the fairest of them all, well then I am the fairest of them all. After all, values are merely subjective concepts programmed into the human animal by the blind watchmaker of evolution, which only cares about what works, doesn't care about truth, any more than it cares about goodness or beauty. Beauty is Why should we care about truth? Why should we care about truth? We must keep faith with Darwin. Why? We must keep, must keep faith with Darwin and admit that we know that all we can know is the subjective meaning of our own words. In other words, we must admit that we know that we don't know anything. 
which is deeply self-contradictory. <laughs> but hey, why pay attention to consistency and truth? Why should I? There's no objective should about it. And the postmodernist calls the modernist bluff. How they can use the word must? Keep yeah. It's not objectively must. No, anymore. No. This is if I can get my colleagues to let me get. If I can, if I can get you to let me get away with trying to persuade you in this way through my rhetorical use of language. This is why postmodernists see everything is about power plays. It's power plays between people and society and, and so on. It's not about transcendental transcendental values of truth, happiness, and beauty, and so on. French philosopher Jean-François Lyotard characterizes postmodernism as incredulity towards meta-narratives. In other words, <laughs> being skeptical about big overall stories of reality. If you've got a big overall picture, a frame, uh, an understanding of life, the universe, and everything that you want to share with me, I am going to be deeply skeptical about that, he says. And of course, that is his overarching framework and big picture that we should. <laughs> so, but, you know, that is his meta narrative. And postmodernism here, architecture, some postmodern architecture. <laughs> Look what is going on here. We've got. We've got the Greek column, classical, pre-modern Greek column with the lovely capitals there. What is this column doing? It's doing absolutely nothing. It has no purpose. What's it holding up? Oh, it's just there. Yeah. Um, we have all sorts of sort of mishmash. We're using the concrete, glass, steel kind of architecture, but we're referring back to classical stonework for no point or purpose or reason, just because, hey, that's fun, you know? Okay, it's fun, but yeah, it's still saying something. It's out of context. Out of context, as you say, yeah. It's like, why, well, why not? There are columns in the building. <laughs> it's called the M2 building in, in Tokyo, <laughs> um, in America. This is the, the Rexler Center for the Performing Arts. And uh, Ravi Zacharias uh, talks about this film, this, this I think it's a wonderful anecdote from Ravi Zacharias that, uh, that gives us a deep insight to postmodernism. And he, he says this, uh, postmodernism tells us that there's no such thing as truth, no such thing as meaning, certainty. And I remember leaving Ohio State University and I was minutes away from beginning my lecture, um, and my host was driving me past a new building, the Rexler Center for the Performing Arts. And he said, oh, look, you know, this is America's first postmodern building. And I was startled for a moment. I said, what, what's a postmodern building? <laughs> and he said, well, the architect said that he designed this building with no design in mind. <laughs> when the architect was asked why, he said, well, if life itself is capricious, it's random and meaningless, why should our buildings have any design or any meaning? So he has pillars that have no purpose. He has stairways that go nowhere. He has a senseless building built 
and somebody has paid for it. <laughs> well, I said, yeah. so his argument was that if life has no purpose and design, why should the building have any design? He said, that's correct. And I said, did he do the same with the foundation? <laughs> you see, that calls the bluff of the postmodernist meta-narrative. Calls the architect's bluff on this. But actually, when it comes to the foundation of the building, he, of course, is, is deeply modernist or scientific or, and that of course fits with pre-modernism as well, he pays attention to, well actually this doesn't need to stand up and not kill people and therefore I need to follow the rules of physics and engineering in order to construct this, but then I pretend that I'm not doing that in the rest of the building. Hmm. There was a silence. You see, you and I can fool with the infrastructure as much as we would like, says Zacharias, but we dare not fool with the foundation because it will call our bluff in a hurry. Think about foundation in worldview terms as well. See, working through the ramifications of denying God and what happens to the building of our life and our culture and our society when we do that. Can you keep leaping into the upper story as the early modernists wanted to? We've seen that later modernists are denying all of those things. And postmodernists are saying, well, if you're going to deny all of those things, how come you're still trying to hold on to science and truth? In society. And in society uh, and so on. You're not, you're not being consistent in your capricious view of things, only when it suits you. But of course, here we see that that's true for the postmodernists as well. That they also contradict themselves, saying there are no, no meta-narratives and that is that, saying it's a meaningless building and they don't treat the foundation that way. It's one thing to sit in a literary uh, lecture in, in literature department at the university and for the literary professor to say, texts have no inherent meaning. Words mean what they mean to you. It's another thing for them to not bother checking the instructions on the medicine bottle <laughs> to take the right dosage when they're given some medicine by the doctor. They don't say, oh, well, this text means whatever it means to me, so I think I'll take five tablets. Because that might kill them. <laughs> William Lane Craig says, nobody reads the instructions on medicine as a postmodern literary theorist. <laughs> The idea that we live in a postmodern culture, though, says Craig, is a myth. Yeah. A postmodern culture is an impossibility. Yes. It would be utterly unlivable. Well, yes. Since Pete, and he also notes that people are not relativistic when it comes to matters of science, engineering, technology. They're relativistic in matters of religion, ethics, yes. transcendent values, so on. But of course, that's not postmodernism. In a sense, that is modernism. We saw that modernism led to, led to this fact-value divide was part and parcel of the, post, of the modernist view. Old line verificationism. Now, I didn't talk about verificationism. I skipped over that little section there. But this was the view that just preceded scientism in culture in about the 1920s and 30s, in particularly, sorry, world, British analytical philosophy in Oxford, 
was dominated by thinking about when does language, what does language mean? When does language mean things? And particularly a guy called A.J. Eyre published a book called Language, Truth and Logic in his early days, which argued that language is only meaningful if it's true by definition or in a sort of Richard Dawkins sense, you can test it empirically. So if I say the moon is made of cheese, that's silly, but it's meaningful. And it's meaningful because if I found myself on the moon with a spoon, I know what experiment to do to test it. If I say two plus two equals four, or there are no square circles, or uh, no bachelor is married, then that's meaningful because those things are all just true by definition. But AJS said, if I say torturing small children for fun is wrong, or that rainbow is beautiful, or there is a god, or there isn't a god, I'm talking nonsense. I've not said something that's true or false. I've just not really said anything. I've just gone because those are statements that aren't true or false by definition, he said, and they're not statements that you can test empirically, he held. Now this movement didn't last all that long, and A.J. Aaron himself in later days said it, that it was full of mistakes and he gave up on it, principally because it was soon noticed that it was a self-contradictory position. Because the claim, language only means things if it's true by definition or empirically checkable, it's not itself a claim that is true by definition or which is empirically checkable. So again, if you apply the test to itself, it ends up saying that this viewpoint is meaningless. So why take notice of it? But you see, if you've had that view of definition or empirical scientific checking tells us when language is meaningful, so okay, that doesn't work. What the scientistic view did was say, well, let's take that and apply it not to the meaning of our language, but to when we can rationally claim that we're making true claims with our language. And then you're into scientism. It's true if it's true by definition, of course, or it's true if you can empirically justify what you're saying. Back to what Richard Dawkins said. To say. that's, it's too narrow, and again, it's self-contradictory. But that's not surprising, given its, its roots in for this verificationism theory. So Craig argues, we live in a culture that remains deeply modernist. However much we might want to use the, the term postmodern for some sort of aspects of that culture. But those who are pushing the postmodernism, they're in a sense trying to be more consistent in their denial of, of, of God, as I would see it. But of course, they can't succeed. Because when you can't have a consistent view that doesn't have God at the foundation of it. Really, ultimately, because we are human persons and we're trying to think about what's true and we think we ought to pursue the truth. And you ought to listen to me when I try and convince you that my view, be it modernist or postmodernist or whatever, is true. But if I, as a postmodernist, say, well, I care about truth, I, as a pre-modernist, can say, well, I do, but you don't, so I'm not listening. What are you going to do about it? <laughs> Let me... <laughs> lovingly put your nose to the grindstone here and say, actually, you're not being as consistent as you think you are. You're hoisted by your own petard just as much as the modernist is as well. Now, J.P. Morland, of course, colleague of Craig's, we've written books together, he published an article saying he thought 
there were different degrees of postmodernism. It distinguishes four grades, if you like, of postmodernism. And we can divide this into what we might call shallow postmodernism, which is really modernism, as, as Craig points out, but also deep postmodernism. And you can't, as Craig said, deep postmodernism, you can't consistently live as if this were true, but people do claim that that is true. They do claim that they live like this. So at a shallow level, we have um, a value-denying um, axiology is the area of philosophy that considers value. So both um, ethics and aesthetics would be axiology, value-denying, that sort of scientific or verificationist type modernism. That's shallow postmodernism. Then as we sink further into the mire, as it were, we would get to uh, knowledge-denying postmodernism. Epistemology is the area of philosophy that considers what is knowledge and how do we know things. If we deny that we know things, we get deeper into postmodernism. So we don't know. Sink deeper. He uses the word anything because the, the Greek alethos is, is uh, to do with truth, uh, analytic, truth denying. It's one thing to say I don't know what the truth is. It's an even deeper form of skepticism to say there is no such thing as truth to be known. It's not just that we don't know it or that it is unknowable. Principle. There is no such thing as truth to be known. So that's an even deeper form of skepticism. Nihilism. And at, at the real depth of deep, deep nihilistic postmodernism, there is this reality denying postmodernity. Not only is there no truth, but there is no reality. There is really nothing. Ontic, uh, ontos, being in the Greek. Ontology is the study of being. So these are progressively deeper forms of denial of reality. We can't, there is, there is no, we can't know about values, or there are no values, but not only are there no values, we don't have any knowledge about anything, not only do we not have any knowledge about anything, but there are no truths to be known about anything. Not only are there no truths to be known about anything, but there isn't anything. That would be, but of course, who, who, who's claiming that? You have to, as you know, Descartes. I think, therefore I am. Descartes didn't get there first. I think it was Augustine who said, if I, if I err, I, I exist. In order, in order to be wrong about something, I, there has to be a me who's wrong about it, surely. Um, so there are some things that I can't be wrong about. I can't be wrong that there's a me who sometimes gets things wrong. So although a, a pre-modern, balanced view of humanity says we are fallen and finite and we don't know everything and we get stuff wrong, but also says, but it is self-contradictory to go to the lengths of saying, but we, we can't know, we can't get anything right ever. Says we know, but now we know in part. Oh, do you remember that from St. Paul? We, we know, but it's like seeing in a glass, in a mirror, darkly, an old-fashioned mirror that's not particularly burnished. 
not particularly flat, it gives a bit of a distorted reflection, but we're still seeing things in it that are real things. So Doug Grutas says, postmodernism is so often presented as a radical departure from modernism. But it's easy to miss the insight that postmodernism is, in many ways, of this phrase, modernism gone to seed. It's modernism carried to its logical conclusion and therefore its inevitable demise. Its logical conclusion is its inevitable demise. It is to adopt a sort of Nietzschean nihilism. He said, nihilism represents the ultimate logical conclusion of our great values and ideals. Back in the 19th century, so postmodernism is not really new, <laughs> is it? It's not new. Um, it's been a current there of the post-enlightenment denial of God culture. He talks about the great recent event that God is dead, says Nietzsche. That the Christian God has become unbelievable, beginning to cast its first shadows over Europe, he said. For those whose eyes are open, suspicion in whose eyes is strong. He talks about um, the loss of some ancient, something ancient and profound, the sun having set, trust having turned to doubt. If you want a one phrase summary of postmodernism, trust turned to doubt, Frederick Nietzsche, probably as good as you could get, I think. How much must collapse now that this faith in God has been undermined? For example, the whole of our European morality is saying that if we're getting rid of God, we're going to get rid of a whole lot of other stuff that went with God. And he criticised, he wrote criticising English moralistic philosophers who were talking about morals even though they didn't believe in God. He said, you, you can't do that, guys. He denied value as well. He said, when one gives up the Christian faith, one pulls the right to Christian morality out from under one's feet. Here's William Lane Craig reading uh, the famous Parable of the Madman from Vlasustra uh, by Nietzsche. I'd say with the, the rise, the depths of postmodernism coming upon us, we've reached that stage where the news of God's death has reached people's ears. And it's being expressed in our culture and the art of our culture in songs like that um, song from Wilson that song from Muse, um, the angst of the, the crime dramas, the machines for living in, for, uh, for machines, for people who don't have souls, uh, and so on. That we're there. Nietzsche denied truth. It was Nietzsche who said, why should you pay attention to truth? What is truth, asked Nietzsche. A movable host of metaphors. It's just, we're just locked within our, how we're using language. We're not really referring accurately to things or not accurately to things, the reality of which determines the truth or falsity of our language. We just have our language. That's so postmodern. What is truth? A movable host of metaphors. Truths, he says, are illusions which have, we have forgotten our illusions. 
They are metaphors that have become worn out. Wonderfully phrased, evocative, powerfully put, so prophetic. Nietzsche even said this, he said, I fear that we will never get rid, rid ourselves of God so long as we still believe in grammar. <laughs> oh, you could pursue those thoughts philosophically, um, but we don't have the time. So long as we still believe in grammar, we can't rid ourselves of God. Atheist Patricia Churchland says that she's a philosopher of mind. She says the principal chore of the nervous system is to get the body parts where they should be in order that the organism may survive. Truth, says whatever that is, definitely takes the hindmost. This is a modern materialist philosopher of mind describing the human person, our understanding of where people have come from. What does that mean for our concept of truth. And yet she's saying this description is true. Isn't she? Saying this is the truth about humans, that we're here as a result of the process that doesn't care about truth, that truth takes the hindmost in this process of why we're here. And yet she thinks she has confidence that she knows the truth. Atheist Richard Rorty postmodernist is the idea that one species of organism, unlike all the others, is orientated not just towards its own increased propensity, but towards truth with a capital T, is as un-Darwinian as the idea that every human being has a built-in moral compass, he says. In straw uh, uh, dogs, uh, we get the quote, um, from um, John Gray, that to think of science as the search for truth is to renew a mystical faith that truth rules the world, that truth is divine. Modern humanism is the faith that through science, humankind can know the truth and be set free. But if Darwin's theory of natural selection is true, this is impossible. The human mind serves evolutionary success, not truth. To think otherwise is to resurrect a pre-Darwinian era that humans are different from all other animals. Uh, at least a naturalistic interpretation of, of an evolutionary process actually undermines your confidence that you can know the truth through science. Again, back to saying the, the roots of science were in the theological concept of God and his creation and his creation of us in his image. And here are atheist philosophers recognizing this today. He says, um, a rigorously naturalistic account of the human mind entails a much more skeptical view of human knowledge than is commonly acknowledged, says Gray. Or Thomas Nagel, in his recent little book, scandalous little book, and I encourage you to get it and, and have a look, Mind and Cosmos. This is a well-known American atheist philosopher of, of mind. And he writes a book called Mind and Cosmos, subtitle, Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. 
If truth takes the hindmost on naturalism, how can naturalists be confident of the truth of naturalism? And atheist Thomas Nagel says, evolutionary naturalism provides an account of our cognitive capacities that undermines their reliability, and in doing so, undermines itself. Um, it's one thing to see a Christian philosopher like Alvin Plantinger in his updating of the kind of argument C.S. Lewis made in Miracles about thought and naturalism. And Plantinger has updated that in terms of his famous evolutionary anti-naturalism argument. Uh, type it into the uh, YouTube search engine and find some of Plantinger's lectures on this. But here is an atheist philosopher of mind saying the same thing. Dr. Howard Taylor, Christian writer now, puts it this way. He says, postmodernism uses reason to show that reason itself is invalid. But any system which is arrived at by reason and then uses reason to invalidate reason must be self-refuting. Nevertheless, postmodernism is right in saying that there is no room for reason in the modernist atheist worldview. This is what undergirds and unites both modernism and postmodernism in its various forms. They are ch children of the same cradle. They are united by getting God off the scene and to some extent or other working through those consequences and those work through culturally and we can see them in the culture. And it affects, it's not just about the ideas that people think in the ivory towers. It works its way through culture. It affects what it was like to be a human being living in a particular society. It leads to, I think we can see, this sort of disintegrative, angsty spirituality rather than an intricative, holistic, shalom-making spirituality. So here's a summation of what I've been arguing, and then we'll have a bit of Q&A, and we'll stop in time uh, for the writing out of the forms, and getting our coaches, and getting to our homes. So here we have a pre-modern worldview, which God is foundational and central. And that worldview has, has room for um, science, great, for wisdom as well as reason, for objective purpose and meaning and values, objective goodness and beauty and truth. And these support one another, they cohere together. You can do the science because of the transcendent values because there's something beyond what the science can tell you, you can do the science. But then along comes modernism. And modernism says, let's draw our circle a bit differently. Let's put a naturalistic worldview at the foundation. Or I love science, let's keep science. Um, but I want to leave out, let's leave out God. That's out there. Truth, yeah, we need, we need truth because you know science, truth. But this this goodness, beauty stuff, that's really let's leave that out. I mean, we can talk about it, but only in subjective, relative kind of terms. We have an axiological, a value-denying postmodernism. But indeed, the modernists 
often want to keep a sense of, of meaning of human life and so on. They say, this doesn't need to lead to nihilism and postmodernism and so on. Because I can, I can still be satisfied with, with my subjective preferences and projects in life. There are things I enjoy doing, so I don't have to get depressed about this lack of objective value stuff. That's the sort of existentialist. There's no meaning in life, but let's paint on a smile anyway. <laughs> and then along comes the postmodernist, who's calling the modernist bluff and saying, ah, well, 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 this is just shallow postmodernism. It's not consistent enough with your denial of God. It's one thing to have this axiological denial, but doesn't really, doesn't ultimately get rid of God lead you deeper into denying knowledge? How can you really do science given your naturalistic understanding of what a person is? Given your, what about this denial of value? So isn't there some connection between rationality and axiology, between asking the question, why should I value truth? If you say, well, for pragmatic ends, because you happen to want this, that, and the other. Yes, but this, that, and the other are never things within that framework that I should value or pursue. And so if I choose not to, you have no grounds upon which to rationally and coherently object. So we have an analytic, a truth denying. And if we, if we deny all truth, well, it's one step away from this ontic reality denying. Just, let's just deny everything. Go the whole lot. We've been so inconsistent up to now, anyway. Um, <laughs> you see, there's a certain brightness to the postmodern critique of modernism. But instead of saying, well, in order to rectify this, these internal tensions that we spotted, obviously you need to bring God back in the picture. We need to go back to a pre-modern worldview. That doesn't mean giving up on modern science and so on. But at a worldview level, keeping faith with the traditional wisdom of the Christian worldview that gave birth to science in the first place. But no, actually, we, we'd be more consistent with the denial of God, and that makes us more and more postmodern, and ultimately, ironically, more and more self contradictory more and more disintegrative as a spirituality and as a culture. But at least our culture is now expressing through the arts this dissatisfaction. There are points of contact, to use that phrase, in a culture we can point to and, and say, Look, it seems to me there's something more than just this life that we're living. Without a soul, nothing more than blood and bones. Okay, well, if that's true, then I, perhaps I better face up to it. But I, that is such a significant thing to say that I really ought to be very careful, think long and hard about whether or not that is true. And particularly long and hard about the fact that if I, if I say that it's true that we're nothing more than blood and bones, how does it even make sense to say that a bunch of blood and bones can have true beliefs about things <laughs> and can rely? upon the way the world seems to it. How can you get rationality from non-rationality any more than you can get 
value from valuelessness. Isn't that really just a sort of variation on the theme of getting something from literally nothing, or, or at least from nothing capable of having the wherewithal to give you what you what you're using in your very act of denying it. So there's a sort of uh, apologetic argument here to be mounted in terms of come back to God, come back to God, and you can have science and truth and consistency and beauty and goodness and shalom and so on. And you can see the expression of the desire for this in the human heart in the music, in the films uh, of today. So there is uh, a way that you can describe these things at the philosophical level, and you can also communicate them and, and illustrate them and, and interest people in them at the, at the artistic uh, level as well. So, those conclude uh, my prepared remarks. Uh, we have about five minutes uh, for questions, if we have any last questions, and then we need these uh, questionnaires passed round and we need to make our coach by half past. So. Yes, please. Where do you see things going now, for, from the obvious possibility of taking contact? <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> but but where, where are things going? Yeah. Yeah, so where are things going? I think things are at different stages in different societies, different countries and cultures. I think certainly within my experience in the UK, I would have said 10, 12 years ago, when I was doing work with um, pre-university age students, Quite a lot of their questions of, about Christianity and so on would reflect a postmodern view. But that has shifted, uh, and the, the questions that students ask me now are deeply modernist, deeply sort of rationalistic and scientific in a sense. They, they are dominated by a sort of scientific understanding of how we know things, but at least that leaves them to ask questions like Did Jesus exist as a historical person? How do you square believing in God with believing in moral value? Moral values that allow you to say that they are things that are evil. Because if God were good, wouldn't he not? Isn't there a rational problem here? So that it's, it, it's, it's not, you know, a postmodernist who denies that there are any values couldn't in themselves have a problem with the problem of evil. They might say it's an internal problem for you Christians because you do believe in values. But for them, it wouldn't really be an issue. So, well, there are no, there is nothing evil. The question doesn't even arise, <laughs> you see. Um, but to ask truths, truths about philosophical and historical issues, I mean, they're deeply skeptical and there's deep historical ignorance about things about New Testament historicity and so on. Um, but those are where the questions are. Things have moved back in this sort of modernist direction. Um, at least within my cultural context, I, I hope they continue to therefore move back <laughs> towards the pre-modernism. It's like if you want to give someone an apologetic argument for the truth of, of Christianity, it's pretty hard to do that if they don't believe that there's such a thing as truth. Or that they should change their mind if you give them a, a decent argument with some evidence or, you know, but at least those who are consistent with their modernism, you know, the new atheists are always saying the problem with religion is there's not enough evidence. Show me the evidence. There's, the problem with the resurrection is there's no evidence for it. 
Now, they never actually examine that evidence in any detail because they don't think it's there, because they have this philosophical presupposition that there are no miracles, and even if there were, you couldn't know about them. And even if you could, you shouldn't mention that within history sort of methodological, naturalistic kind of rules and so on. So they never really get to the point of engaging with the evidence. But at least they, they do claim to be interested in evidence. And you can call their bluff on that and actually show them the evidence or show other people that, hey, here is the evidence and why is it that Richard Dawkins isn't engaging with it? Why is he saying that the Gospels are just literary fiction when the atheist New Testament scholars who know what they're talking about would just laugh? Uh, that, look, let me give you some works, let me start evangelizing you by giving you some works by some atheist new <laughs> historians who would at least say, of course Jesus existed, of course he was crucified. That's one of the most certain things we know from ancient history, that Jesus was crucified by the Romans. Of course there were disciples who believed that he was raised from the dead. Can't deny that. You know. uh, so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of, 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 of using uh, the naturalists as, as, our, as our friends as much as possible in evangelism. <laughs> what about the pendulum thing? That's the pendulum thing, you know, that. Yeah, the, the pendulum. So the pendulum may swing backwards and forwards. I mean, you know, it, it's basically, if you, if you deny God and you have any sense of wanting to try and live consistently with that, and, and we all want to try and live to some consistency, and we're seeking this wholeness and integration in our spirituality, you will, be more, you will live more or less consistently with that, whether you've thought about it much or not. And therefore you will fall within this, this what is ultimately a physical spectrum of the, si the city of the world as compared to the city of God, as Augustine talks about. And so, and so also it may do this within the city of the world. Of course, ultimately, we want everyone to join. Come and, come and emigrate. Come and be a citizen of the city of God. Mm -hmm. Amen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Thank you very much, everyone. Safe travels home.